0: Please take a moment right now to hit like, subscribe, and share.
1: Especially share. That's the big one.
0: I grew up in a small town in the Ottawa Valley, but in summers, my dad would always head to Kingston to teach summer classes for Queen's University. For two summers when I was in high school, Mom had this gig as well, and that meant the whole family lived in a campsite. Lake Ontario Park, for the month of July. Being too old to find this kind of getaway fun, and too young to have anything to do other than babysit my brother, I found myself frequently bored. And I don't remember those summers fondly. But at some point, my dad came back to our camper trailer one day and said that the STEAM Museum, located downtown, had a special exhibit, and the actual African Queen was there. All those words held no interest for me they have a museum about steam, I asked. And what is an African queen? I was told it was a steamboat that was in a famous movie. And honestly, I could not have cared less at that time. So we didn't go and see it. And I don't have a photo of 14-year-old me standing alongside the same skiff that Bogie and Hepburn sat in. Let's call that a missed opportunity. A few years later, I was working a summer job at a whitewater rafting resort on the Ottawa River, and in their promotional material there was a quote, always featured prominently. I never dreamed that a mere physical experience could be so stimulating. I asked where that quote came from, and I was told it came from an old movie called The African Queen. What does The African Queen have to do with whitewater rafting, I asked. And I was told by my manager, see the movie, you'll understand. By then, I was pretty Bogart-savvy. I knew The African Queen was a big film in his resume, and he had won Best Actor for it. But it would be years before I saw it. And, yeah, it's pretty damn good. About ten years ago, The African Queen was playing at our local cineplex, as they show old films sometimes, and Nikki and I took Sam, and we all loved it. It's always a treat to see classic films on the big screen. And... I never got to see the actual boat with my dad, but I saw the film with my daughter and wife, and that's the kind of trade-off you make along the way when you love old movies. Hello, film historians. I'm Derek, and I love old movies. We've got Sam the Sidekick here. Hello,
1: and welcome to episode 52, the first episode of our second year. Yeah! And we're really doing things a bit differently. We are. Since we've dropped down to two episodes a month, basically, themes are going to be a bit more informal.
0: It's tough to really explore a theme with only two films. So that just makes good sense when you think about it.
1: So as we were figuring this show out, we were sort of like, What film should we do?
0: Well, we had talked about an Abbott and Costello movie.
1: We've never done them.
0: I even considered a Marilyn Monroe movie.
1: I feel like she's someone we should talk about at some point.
0: We've never done a John Wayne Western.
1: Which is ridiculous.
0: So it's fair to say we had some options.
1: We did. But then we did a little family getaway thing, and that helped crystallize our thinking.
0: Tell them all about it.
1: So we went whitewater rafting at Wilderness Tours on the Ottawa River. Yeah, we did. This is right near where you grew up. Like, we drove through your hometown of Gobden.
0: Exactly. And Wilderness Tours is like a very familiar place. I worked there for four years, back when I was in high school and university. I was in the photo department, and honestly, it was a pretty great job. But also, we've been back rafting as well. I took your mom on the high adventure trip when you were pretty young, and then all three of us went on the family trip when you were maybe 10 or 11. That sounds right. And we had always decided that when you were old enough, we would go back so you could do the full adult trip.
1: Not the kitty trip. No, no. So you signed us up for the sport rafting trip, which is a bit more... intense? Extreme. Wet.
0: Very wet.
1: So we were in a small raft with our guide Cole and his parents, and two best friends. It made for a nice cozy trip with friendly folks. Of course, at the first rapid, you got totally launched. Mm. Like, ejected
0: right out of the boat. You know, I saw the wave. I saw it bury you because you were at the front of the boat. And I was like, oh, man, Sam got clobbered. And the boat continued. And then the wave hit Nikki. And I was like, oh, man, she got crushed. And then the water came for me. And I was like, wait, where am I? And I was totally washed out of the boat. Although I was hanging on to the rope. That lasted for about a second before the rapids pulled me away. And then it was just, like, glub, 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 until I heard Cole cry out, grab the rope, and he was able to retrieve me from the waves.
1: That was an intense start.
0: <laughs> yeah. And then the second rapid, the Lorne.
1: And we saw the other small boat go in, trying to surf, and literally everyone got washed out. That was a bit intimidating.
0: But Cole felt we would fare better, and he steered us right in.
1: We didn't fare any better.
0: Worse, maybe.
1: Yeah. Our entire boat flipped over, landing on... My head. And on Mom.
0: Yeah, that was a spell.
1: It was awesome. The whole day was awesome. We want to go back next summer.
0: Totally. Big shout out to Cole, our guide, Betty, our trip leader, and all the staff at Wilderness Tours for a great day at your resort and on the water. It was amazing.
1: And we posted about the trip on our Instagram, asking our listeners what film we could talk about that had whitewater in it. I mean... It's fair to say we were pretty inspired.
0: A few people mentioned the Meryl Streep film, The River Wild.
1: Some mentioned the Kevin Bacon classic,
0: Whitewater Summer. More than a few were quick to hum a little banjo ditty and encourage us to look at Deliverance. All fun films,
1: but none that really fit into our niche.
0: So, although, to be fair, we probably didn't need to do another Humphrey Bogart film so soon.
1: Or another John Huston one for a while.
0: We said, screw it. It's our show, we make the rules, and we are taking a look at 1951's classic masterpiece, The African Queen. And you talk about some intense whitewater, this film has it.
1: Yes, so let's get on with the business, so we can talk about this film. After you. So, business number one, thanks for being here, thanks for listening. Mm-hmm. Watching movies and talking about them for you is a lot of fun, and it's cool that you're enjoying
0: it. Always, that's so true. And you know what else? We love hearing from you, so when you get ideas, you get in touch with us, and we would love to go back and forth with you about it.
1: Also, if you would like to read a cold open for the podcast, maybe talking about a nostalgic or formative experience you had watching movies, get in touch, and let's make that happen right away.
0: You don't even have to have come from a small town in the Ottawa Valley. But bonus points if you did. If you were on an audio platform, could you see about dropping us some stars and maybe a quick review right now?
1: You'd be surprised how much that sort of thing really helps.
0: And, hey, be sure to check us out on the socials.
1: I don't know if you knew this, but we are on the Facebook.
0: I Love Old Movies, the podcast.
1: You're probably wondering if we are on LUT Instagram. We are.
0: At I Love Old Movies, the podcast.
1: El Twitter? Oh yeah, we got you covered.
0: At Ilom Podcast.
1: And the good old-fashioned email. You don't even need a stamp.
0: I love old movies, the podcast at gmail.com.
1: All one word.
0: And of course, you could even do what the cool kids do, and that is Pet the Rock. By that, I mean head on over to PetRockRadio.ca to listen to amazing local, web-based radio programming with fantastic music and previous episodes of our show broadcast once, twice, thrice a week.
1: Monday, Saturday, and Sunday.
0: Pretty damn cool.
1: We'll link that for you in the description.
0: So, are you all ready to head downstream so far that the river winds up having a different name?
1: Only if I can take a rusty 30-foot steamboat to get there. Hit the music.
0: The director of this film is the mighty John Huston.
1: We've covered a few of his films before, and to hear us talk about him and his career, go back and check out episode 31, The Unforgiven.
0: But you know, there is something cool about him and this film in particular that I think is worth sharing. By all means. So, Huston had a reputation for being a bit of a maverick and a lot of a man's man, and one of his side quests while in Africa to shoot this film was apparently to shoot an elephant. Now, I say apparently, because this is disputed by his son, who said his father thought it would be a sin to shoot an elephant. But the fact remains that Houston took a lot of weapons with him to Africa, and went over early, not only to scout shooting locations, but also hunting locations. In fact, it was said that he would disappear for a while at times, going further in-country to look for such opportunities. Now, Houston's major disappointment came when he learned that only five permits to shoot elephants were granted each year, and there was a five-year waiting list. That seemed to end his quest. But a chance meeting with some Belgians in a bar convinced him to head to the Belgian Congo, where the hunting rules were much more lax. And his little hunts went through production as well, as he might go off shooting before filming began, or after it ended, even on breaks.
1: What was the thing you were telling me about the guy who got arrested?
0: Oh, right, right. Okay, so I guess he was in Uganda, scouting locations, and he wanted to eat locally and eat game meat. So he hired some hunter guy to go and shoot whatever he could find and bring it back to eat. So he assumed he was eating lions and antelopes and monkeys, whatever.
1: God, who'd eat a monkey?
0: Right? I mean, chilled monkey brains is one thing.
1: Well, obviously.
0: But then eventually the army showed up one day and arrested this guy and took him away. And he was connected to the disappearance of these villagers, of whom no trace was ever found. And Houston wondered if... Don't say it. Yeah.
1: That's horrible. That can't be true.
0: I mean, it's probably not. But Houston himself told the story in a documentary I watched about the making of this film. Now, is he above some exaggeration and tall tale telling? Probably not. Anyway, a fictionalized version of Houston's adventures in Africa were novelized by Peter Vertel in the book White Hunter Black Heart, which was later made into a film starring and directed by Clint Eastwood. So, that just might be one you should check out.
1: The writer is James Agee. After graduating from Harvard, Agee began working at Time Incorporated as a reporter before writing for Fortune magazine from 1932 to 1937. During the 30s and 40s, A.G. was primarily a film critic and reviewed films for various news articles. During this time, he wrote and published a few novels, including Let Us Now Praise Famous Men, 1941, which was written with Walker Evans. In the late 1940s, A.G. wrote a screenplay for Charlie Chaplin, later called The Tramp's New World, but the first film he worked on that was actually released was the documentary The Quiet One in 1948. He worked on screenplays for only two more films over the next few years, The African Queen in 1951 and The Night of the Hunter 1955. Probably A.G.'s most well-known written work was the posthumously released A Death in the Family, which won the Pulitzer Prize in Fiction in 1958. After a career that was cut too short with only 11 writing credits, Eiji died in 1955 at the age of 45.
0: Allegedly a direct descendant of England's King John via one of his illegitimate children, Catherine Hepburn was born to a doctor and a suffragist mother. As might be expected from all of this, Catherine was encouraged to speak her mind, and so she did, earning herself a reputation for being blunt and feisty, much like some of the characters she played. Her first film came in 1932, A Bill of Divorcement, opposite John Barrymore. After that film became a hit, RKO agreed to her salary demands, and thus Catherine began her career as a contract actor, and the five films she made between 1932 and 1934 included the film where she won her first Academy Award, 1933's Morning Glory, and what was the most successful film of its day, 1933's Little Women. Unfortunately, her brash and rather unconventional ways of behaving were not embraced by audiences, and critics did not like the way her unconventional characters were. She was more comfortable in trousers than she was in dresses. She didn't like to give interviews or sign autographs. She wasn't a fan of wearing makeup outside of stage and screen. And she quickly gained the dreaded label of box office poison. Although, interestingly, her second Oscar nomination came during this period for 1935's Alice Adams. As you might expect from such a forthright woman, Catherine wasn't keen on being run out of Hollywood simply because she didn't behave the way people expected, so Catherine engineered her own triumphant return. She was a massive hit on Broadway in 1938's The Philadelphia Story, and she promptly purchased the film rights so she could negotiate her own return to Hollywood on her own terms, including being able to choose her own director and co-star. Riding high on her renewed success, Catherine's next film would mark the start of her most significant pairing, both on-screen and off. With Woman of the Year, Catherine was paired up with Spencer Tracy, sparking a chemistry between the two that saw them paired in another eight films, including Tracy's last film, 1967's Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Off-screen, the pair landed in a long-term relationship that lasted for 25 years, ending with Tracy's death in 1967. Catherine did not attend his funeral out of respect for Tracy's family. As a devout Catholic, divorce was never an option for Tracy, and the couple worked hard to maintain appearances despite the very open secret of their relationship, including maintaining separate residences, and Catherine did not publicly acknowledge her love for Tracy until both he and his wife had passed. Another milestone in Catherine Hepburn's career came in 1951 with the African Queen, paired up with Humphrey Bogart, who, along with Lauren Bacall, became extremely close-knit friends with Tracy and Catherine. She received her fifth Oscar nomination and began the stretch of her career where she maintained a firm grip on almost every big role of middle-aged spinster. Unsurprisingly for a screen legend of her stature, as Catherine accumulated numerous achievements and awards through her career, she also held a few Oscar records. As of 2021, Catherine and Barbara Streisand have the distinction for having the only tie in the Oscars for Best Actress, for The Line in Winter and Funny Girl, respectively. Until 2002, Catherine reigned as the highest number of Oscar nominations. Meryl Streep took the title with a 13th nod that year. And an even more interesting record that doesn't appear to be in any danger of being beaten. Catherine Hepburn is the only person to win an Oscar for acting four times. Catherine's final screen performance came in 1994 in Truman Capote's One Christmas, and her final line, much in keeping with her off-screen personality, was "'I can sit back my old age and not regret a single moment.'" Not wish to change a single thing. It's what I wish for you. A life with no regrets. Kevin Hepburn passed away in 2003 at the age of 96.
1: Blessed with the physique that made him a perfect character to play pompous windbags in many supporting roles, Robert Morley was an incredibly accomplished actor and writer whose career in entertainment led him to receive a knighthood offer, which he declined. Morley debuted on stage in London's West End in 1929, and never really looked back, remaining a prolific stage actor in England and the United States, and even globally touring his eventual one-man show. He began making films in the late 30s with an appearance in Scrooge, but his first credited role was as King Louis XVI, for which he received an Oscar nomination in Marie Antoinette. Morley was a constant presence in films from the early 40s right into the 80s, with notable roles in films like The African Queen, Around the World in 80 Days, Oscar Wilde, Those Magnificent Men in Their Flying Machines, Who's Killing the Great Chefs of Europe, and The Great Muppet Caper. Along the way, he was a very accomplished playwright, author, and television host of cooking shows. Never a star, but always a presence, And with an incredible rich and diverse career, Robert Morley died in 1992 at the age of 84.
0: The Making of the African Queen is the tale of a very odd collection of creative people coming together to make a great little film that just happened to become a masterpiece. In the early 1950s, British siblings the Wolf Brothers seemed to predict the crumbling of the studio system and with it the beginning of the end for old Hollywood when they founded two companies— Horizon Films, which would help produce independent features, and Independent Film Distributors, which would help creators bring those films to audiences. Producer Sam Spiegel secured the rights easily and cheaply to make The African Queen, based on C.S. Forrester's novel of the same name, and it had been kicking around Hollywood for almost 15 years. But after signing, John Huston, Bogart... And, on Bogart's request Catherine Hepburn, there was little money left over to make the film, so substantial fundraising had to be done, and this created a complicated web of finances, with money seeming to come from all over in dribs and drabs. Writer A.G. based Charlie and Rose on his own parents, which might have helped with the genuine nature of their chemistry. He saw this film as his entrance into Hollywood, and Houston was very eager to work with him. A.G. worked relentlessly on the script— even having a heart attack during the process. And sadly, he would die a year later. It's like he worked himself
1: to death on this film. It's really sad.
0: With initial production being done in Africa, a flotilla of various boats was assembled to pull crew, props, lights, cameras, gear, literal sections of the African Queen for various shots, and of course, Catherine Hepburn's private washroom. This is a lady who knew
1: her priorities.
0: Lauren Bacall went to Africa as well, accompanying Bogart, and she served as a real helper on set. She prepared meals, helped nurse sick crew, and did a lot of what you might call support work, almost PA work, on set. Dealing with isolation, very subpar living conditions, vicious insects, African wildlife, illnesses like dysentery and malaria made production on this film extremely difficult for everyone. Bogart and Houston seemed to be spared the worst of illnesses, though. Since they didn't drink the water, they drank nothing but alcohol.
1: Those were a pair of men who knew their
0: priorities. Houston loved to make movies about beautiful losers. Man being his own worst enemy. His films are filled with the theme of someone trying to do something and failing. Things don't work, nothing works, and this is part of being alive and being human, he believed. The African Queen was no exception to this, and yet he and A. G. agreed that they had to change the end of the film so it would be different than the book. In the novel, Charlie and Rose fail in their quest, but Houston knew he was filming characters that the audience needed to see win.
1: Martin Scorsese called this the first great movie about middle-aged people. This was the film that set Katharine Hepburn apart from her contemporaries and established her beyond being an incredible actress, but almost an institution.
0: No kidding. Production moved to England after wrapping in Africa, and that's where they shot the scenes aboard the German ship Louisa and all the scenes where someone had to be in water, since the African water was so poisonous with bacteria and risky with wildlife that no one could possibly go in.
1: How was the film received when it came out? Like, I watched this film and instantly fall in love with it.
0: Well, the distributors hated the movie. They thought Bogey looked like shit. They thought Hepburn looked old. But Sam Spiegel and the Wolf Brothers stood by this film 100% and even insisted that it be considered for Oscars. They wouldn't change anything. There'd be no reshoots, no different edits, nothing.
1: They knew they had it.
0: They sure did. And once it was released, the film was an instant success, hugely popular with audiences and critics. And of course, Bogey won his only Oscar, being recognized as best actor. And you're right. It, it's a film that's impossible to resist, telling as it does the tale of two losers who get together and win. What's the tale of the tape on this one, Sam?
1: Okay, so we have a 7.7 on IMDb.
0: Shockingly low.
1: The audience score is 86% on Rotten Tomatoes.
0: Shockingly low. No. And
1: the tomato meter is 96%. Okay. The film won an Oscar for Best Actor in a Leading Role and was nominated for Academy Awards for Best Actress in a Leading Role, Best Director, and Best Screenplay. The film can be watched on YouTube, which seemed very lucky, and I'm not sure you could always do that. It also turns up on television from time to time, and can be rented on Amazon Prime Video.
0: A small steamship named the African Queen, helmed by Canadian machinist Charlie Allnutt, runs supplies up and down the river in German East Africa. One of his stops is a small village where missionary siblings Rose and Samuel Sayre are stationed.
1: Charlie tells them that war has broken out between Germany and England and barely has time to leave before soldiers arrive, burn the village, conscript the natives, strike down Samuel, who later dies, and leave Rose to fend for herself.
0: Charlie returns and helps bury Samuel before evacuating Rose on the African Queen. Charlie explains that the British forces cannot advance to help them because of a lake downriver that is patrolled by a German gunship, the Louisa. Rose hatches a plan to use the Queen as a torpedo boat to destroy the Louisa, and Charlie finds this ridiculous. However, she soon convinces him.
1: The problem is that the river is virtually unpassable due to the many rapids and the condition of the African Queen. Charlie teaches Rose how to steer the ship so he can tend to the engines. They hit the first set of rapids and navigate through easily, which fills them with hope, and also has them learn to respect and have some affection for each other.
0: Next, they must pass a German fortress, where they are fired upon by poorly trained snipers. The Queen's steam engine is damaged and Charlie must perform an emergency repair under very tough conditions. He fixes it not a moment too soon, as the boat is drawn into a second set of much more challenging rapids.
1: This part of the trip is much more perilous, but they do survive and caught up in the emotion of the moment, they embrace and kiss, unlocked a new level of relationship between them. Third set of much steeper rapids loom ahead and the boat is almost destroyed taking on a great deal of water, twisting the shaft, and breaking a propeller
0: blade. With Rose's encouragement, Charlie fashions a small forge on shore, bends the shaft back, and welds a new propeller blade. Somehow, it all holds together, and they set off again. But they've reached the river Delta, and get lost in an endless maze of reeds and mud. They're reduced to pulling the boat through leech-infested muck, and they work to the point of exhaustion and fever but are hopelessly stuck, and have very little drinkable water left.
1: As they pass out, Rose prays, and as they sleep, torrential rains from upstream wash the river out, raising the boat up off the mud and letting it float into the lake, which was incredibly nearby. Almost immediately, they are spotted by the Louisa, which is on patrol, and they hide back in the reeds, preparing the queen for the attack.
0: Charlie has oxygen tanks, blasting gelatin, and cartridges on board, and he is able to create two crude torpedoes, which they run out of the bow of the ship by cutting holes for them to fit through. When the Louisa returns, they head towards it, aiming the Queen on a collision course. A storm breaks out, though, making navigation difficult, and water pours through the torpedo holes, swamping the African Queen and forcing her to capsize.
1: Charlie and Rose lose each other in the storm. But Charlie is retrieved by the Louisa and presumes Rose to be dead. He's interrogated and assumed to be a spy and sentenced to hang. Just then, Rose is brought aboard and she is sentenced to hang as well.
0: Charlie requests that the captain marry them before carrying out the sentence, and he agrees. Once their brief ceremony is over, the Louisa accidentally collides with the mostly submerged wreck of the African Queen, activating the torpedoes and blowing a huge hole in the hull, sinking it. Rose and Charlie jump into the lake and swim for shore, their quest completed, and their reward, each other.
1: I feel like all those Germans in the water might have had something to say about how much happily ever after Rose and Charlie got.
0: Hey, we will never know.
1: Regardless, loved it. Let's prank on this.
0: Okay, so as always, we don't actually rate films here on the show, there are no stars or thumbs, we just tell you some things we liked. Some things we didn't. And then we recommend whether or not you might enjoy giving this one a watch. Take it away. My pros: number one, Charlie Allnut. In the wretched little Canadian boatman, Humphrey Bogart turned in another stellar performance of a very atypical hero. These were the roles that Bogie played the best. Struggling with loneliness, cowardice, pragmatism, alcoholism, hygiene issues, Allnut is every bit as wretched as he is called. But we cannot help but root for him. He's maybe not even a classic everyman, but we can relate to his flaws and admire his ingenuity. He looks like a hobo, but he could build a forge on an island, perform complicated repairs on a ship, and fabricate explosives capable of taking down a warship. He's pretty spectacular. Number two, the chemistry between Humphrey Bogart and Catherine Hepburn. By this point, audiences had grown quite accustomed to seeing Bogart with Lauren Bacall and Hepburn with Spencer Tracy as their go-to romantic pairings, but in the pairing of these two performers and these two characters, we are given something very new—a romance not based on sex appeal or attraction or lost love, but one based on enduring the crucible of survival in the worst circumstances, and one of mutual respect. I don't know if I believe that Rose and Charlie love each other in a truly, madly, deeply kind of way, but they certainly respect each other. We don't see that a lot in cinematic romances. We see the attraction, we see the infatuation, but we don't always see the deep respect. They make a beautiful screen couple. Number three, the location shooting in Africa, especially the whitewater scenes. I never dreamed that a mere physical experience could be so stimulating. What a line! And when you watch those scenes you believe it and the junglescapes, the endless winding river the ambient sounds of animals that add so much authenticity to the proceedings had this film been made in a backlot it wouldn't have worked they rolled the dice huge and they made something incredible here number four the film is essentially a two-hander with bogart and hepburn carrying most of the performance and narrative themselves It's a great job of acting by two of old Hollywood's absolute finest. Both of them are on top of their game, turning incredible performances under very difficult filming circumstances. The scene where they're dragging the boat through the swamp, Hepburn swinging the machete through the grass, clearing their path. Oh my God, that's... Moments like that are the magic that only movies can make you feel. My cons. The opening title sequence. Seriously, in a movie of this stature, I cannot believe how amateurish, how tacked on, and how ineffectual and uninteresting the title credits are. Just like a stroll through the jungle, looking up while letters in dull font fill the screen. It just seemed like someone said, oh yeah, we need credits. Ah, screw it, just do whatever. Number two. All Nuts detoxing from alcohol was not handled accurately. Going from being always a little bit juiced to totally dry would lead him to a very fierce bit of detoxing and some extremely unpleasant days. Instead, we see him shave and talk about the Bible and make some tea with Rose, and Charlie is immediately as right as rain. It not only doesn't ring true, it's completely unrealistic. Number three, I feel like maybe this isn't the greatest shot film. The cinematography isn't especially creative or clever, which seems like a missed opportunity given everything they had at their disposal. There's so much to see in this film, I just wish we'd been given better looks. I feel like a true Cinemascope widescreen version of this film would have been incredible, but it probably wasn't possible given the difficulties of using the technology on location. Still, one can dream summing up my thoughts on an undeniable classic of cinema is always hard so in this case i'm not really going to try the film is amazing it's the sort of movie that makes watching movies the magical wondrous experience it is to see total megastars of their era taking such risks not only as performers but as people working in horrible conditions to create a piece of art and entertainment to believe in the project that much and to have it pay off so well it was an incredible achievement Just, if you haven't already, go watch this film. And if you have seen it, watch it again. It deserves it. This is, of course, a watch recommendation for me. You're up.
1: Okay, so my pros. One, the rapids. They were so crazy. I thought the boat was going to flip over every time it got hit by a wave. It was so stressful watching the boat get swamped by water and thrown all over the place. The scenes always looked so intense, and I loved the camera shots cutting back and forth between the close-ups on the boat and the longer shots of the boat going through the rapids. The scenes were a lot of fun and super exciting to watch. Honestly, I just want to go whitewater rafting again even more now. 2. Rose Rose I really liked this character. She was funny, smart, and super stubborn. She stood her ground and did not take no for an answer. I absolutely loved her reaction to the boat going through the rapids. The fact that she liked it and found it fun was super funny to me and made me love her even more. I also really liked how ready she was to get her hands dirty, like when she jumped in the water to help Alnut fix the boat. Three, the location. I am a huge fan of films being shot on location instead of some studio set with backdrops. I find it makes everything feel more real and authentic. So that was definitely a huge plus for me. I mean, you could just feel how miserable Rosie and Alna were when they were stuck in the mud and the reeds. Part of why I liked it so much for this specific film is that we got to see all the wildlife around them on the shore. And hearing all the birds and stuff in the background was really cool. Now my cons. One. Some parts in the music. For the most part, the music was fine. Honestly, I don't even remember most of it, and I didn't really notice it during the film. But there were a few parts near the beginning when All Note was offering some of his gin to Rose The music took a complete 180 and got sort of louder and deeper, very clearly saying, hey, this is a bad thing happening, before it went back to normal. It was funny, the contrast the music made for that one action, but the scene and situation itself wasn't funny, so it just felt out of place and unnecessary with everything else. 2. The weird animal scene. Okay, so this was one scene I just did not get. Walnut starts by making some noises to scare off hippos in the water. And that's fine. He had mentioned earlier that hitting them with a boat would make them angry and that would be bad. But then he kept making the noises. And then monkey noises, too. Him and Rose were laughing. And I get it, they were making light of a not-great situation. That's fine. But it was just kind of weird. It seemed like Allnut was making fun of the animals, and it just seemed kind of out of place and random with everything else that was going on in the film. Three. The ending. I absolutely loved that the African queen ended up doing her job and exploding. That was great. It makes sense that Allnut and Rose were happy about that. But what was going to happen after that? All those soldiers were still in the water... Alna and Rose were still in an area they weren't supposed to be in. Are they going to get caught and sentenced to death again? I just wish we got something afterwards so we knew if they got away or something. This is such an enjoyable movie with great performances. I know that I've seen the movie before, but I didn't remember it, so this felt like the first time I was watching it. I had so much fun. I mean i was on the edge of my seat at some parts i was so invested in watching and i wanted to know what was going to happen next this is a great film so definitely give this one a watch
0: all right and with that comes the end of another episode and i don't think anyone listening expected anything but a double watch recommendation and that's exactly what you got
1: have you seen this film how did you like it I really didn't remember anything about it despite seeing it as a child, so it was fun to sort of re-experience it for the first time. And I loved it.
0: Oh, yeah. And be sure to come back in two weeks for our next episode, and that's going to hit on September 1st.
1: Abbott and Costello, then? Yeah?
0: For sure. Let's do it.
1: Okay, then. Sounds good. But until then, be sure to watch more movies.
0: And let everyone know about us. We're not a secret. You don't have to keep us all to yourselves.
1: So tell your friends. Tell your enemies. You never know. They might like risking their lives in treacherous whitewater as much as you do.
0: Maybe even more. Maybe as much as you do. (laughs) For Sam the Sidekick, I'm Derek, and I love old movies. Additional research for I Love Old Movies the podcast is done by Nikki Weatherden. Audio clips come from prefx.co.uk. Images are used through the provisions of fair use, and our theme song, Burning Bridges, is by The Crocs.